This is episode 275 with physical therapist, author, researcher, and inventor of the MOBO board, Jay DeSherry. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features one of the most well-known movement specialists, physical therapists, and running form experts in the world, Jay DeSherry. We're exploring the topic of stability today, what that actually means, how to build stability into your training, why we often think we're building physical stability when we're not, stability versus dynamic stability, and why this is more important as we age. If you're new here, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And you can find me on Instagram at jasonfitz1. Our home base is strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world, no matter how fast they are, with our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and our suite of training programs to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. Learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. This podcast is supported by my favorite electrolyte company, Element. I brought Element to a group run probably every other week at this point, and folks are thrilled to try it. That's because it's surprisingly delicious for a relatively high sodium electrolyte supplement. You can prevent the symptoms of electrolyte imbalances like headaches, cramps, fatigue, and weakness with Element. And they're now offering you a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. They'll send you a sample pack with one packet of each flavor so that you can try them all before committing. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to claim your free gift. Joining us today is Jay DeSherry. Jay has a master's of physical therapy and is a board-certified sports clinical specialist. He built his international reputation as an expert in biomechanical analysis as director of the Speed Clinic at the University of Virginia. He's the author of two of my favorite running books, Anatomy for Runners, and the more recent, Running Rewired. Jay is also a certified running, cycling, and golf coach. But not to be outdone, he's also the inventor of the innovative MOBO board. The MOBO board helps you build stability in the proper plane of motion, allowing you to drive your big toe into the ground and create the most stable foundation for your running. Thankfully, MOBO is also joining us as a sponsor today. Use code STRENGTHRUN10 at moboboard.com to save 10% on your own MOBO board. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jay DeSherry. Hey, Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, the last time that we spoke, I think it was almost two years ago, and, and we were talking about all these different aspects of injury prevention and we're going to continue that theme today and talk more about stability, which I think is an exciting aspect of how runners can stay healthy because, you know, we usually focus on some of the bigger, you know, what I might say, sexier topics like strength training for runners and, you know, great workouts and things like that. But stability, I think, is, is just as important. 
And one of the things that I've learned from you over the years is the importance of foot and ankle stability, the ability to drive your big toe into the ground, and just having this very stable foundation on each individual leg. So I'd love to unpack that a little bit. Can you explain what driving the big toe into the ground really means? Why, why do we focus on this? So I think that, you know, you look at the idea behind running is, you know, obviously we're moving forward, right? I mean, we're running forward. And it's interesting, this, this our, our talk today is sort of timely. There was an article that came out recently that got a bunch of uh, press the past few days looking at um, different types of running styles, right? Talking about some people, more bouncers, some are more striders, and all these different, like, you know, cool sounding lingos and, and names that I'm not going to dig into that right now, but... It's interesting. I mean, I've never had an athlete in my entire career come in and get hurt because they just had weak quads, right? And they, because they had like just like weak hamstrings. I mean, if you have bed rest, you know, that's something different, right? And if you, you know, if you, if you, if it immobilized some type of injury for a long time, it's a different story. But for the average runner, I mean, you're not weak, okay? Um, the reality is that, you know, you, those muscles get used every single stride because you're doing that motion over and over again. And certainly strength is important for performance. But we talk about why people break down. They break down because we have a huge imbalance in how well you can control muscles that drive us forward from the muscles which control lateral and twist or torsional control. And so when you start to think about what those muscles are, we're not just talking about how much you can push off. We're talking about how well you can steer and stabilize your parts as you walk and, and yes, run, right? And so when we talk about the role of the big toe and, and also the hips, right? We need to develop this spiral line of control that basically starts down in the foot and progresses through the entire body up into the hip and yes, up even into the core as well, right? And so to make this a little bit more specific, when you contact, this is not something I want you to stress about. If you're a heel striker, a midfoot striker, a foot striker, it doesn't matter. This is all the same thing, right? We look at this thing called the center of pressure, okay? And the center of pressure is basically... Those of you who may have seen some like little plots that different marketing companies use all the time. They show little hot spots kind of under the, the, the sole of the foot. Um, and usually you see a big spike under the ball of the foot, under the big toe. And that's because that center of pressure travels down the outside of the foot, across the ball of the foot, and should come out through the big toe. And so if you have good control and utilization of muscles inside your feet, right, and you can sort of steer that path through your foot, you're putting the peak stresses where they should be, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think this is almost an easier way of understanding things because it, it's not just saying, let's get as strong as possible. You know, that that's probably a good thing for runners. Getting strong is, is usually never a, a bad idea, but just as important, I think, is how we use that strength, how that strength is expressed while we're out there especially running fast, running a workout, trying to run a race, you know, trying to actually push ourselves. And, you know, we could have all the strength in the world, but if we're not expressing it properly, then there's just a lot of wasted movement. And, and I really like this idea of resisting motion and how that is just as important as forward propulsion when we're running, because there's a lot of other forces at play, right? 
Right. Yeah. It's a great example is, is like when people talk about, you know, posture for runners, right? I mean, no one should run in an upright military position. That's ridiculous. So when you think of the idea of, quote, perfect posture, that doesn't really exist, right? Uh, but you should be able to maintain your upper body over your pelvis as you're running, right? And so we know from looking at, looking at athletes, right, thousands of athletes in our lab, we can tell you that, you know, you should have some side to side motion of your spine. You should have some front to back motion of your spine. You should have some rotation motion in your spine. How much? Like about four to eight degrees in each one of those planes. So is there a motion? Yes, but it's controlled motion, right? It's when we see people get in trouble, it's when they can't stabilize motion of their upper body and lower body, right? That's sort of an easy thing to visualize. Well, same thing for the foot and ankle and same thing for the hip, right? You do have motion in your foot. Runners call this pronation supination. They get freaked out about these terms. I always tell people, Pronation supination is like saying your elbow is either extended or flexed. It's just a, a name for a position. It's not good or bad. It's just a name for a position. And so your foot goes through pronation, which is a more collapsed position of your foot, and supination, which is a more rigid position of your foot, every single time you you stride, right? And that, that happens during each stride. And that's okay. It's supposed to happen. And there's no studies out there that ever correlated amount of pronation to injury risk. But there are studies that have correlated rate of pronation, right? So can you deal with the dynamic loads of running as you're running? Okay. And so we just said this little, we use the name of the definition there, but that's okay. So if you can control your body um, as you're running, specifically motion in the foot and up in the hip, right? Then you do a really good job about steering your foot and steering your hip to control your position. If you don't do a good job at steering your foot and steering your hip, then we have defeat, right? Those high loads that we see when you run, they wind up winning, right? And yes, you may be, you know, running forward, right? But we see extra slop in the system. And that can cause it, efficiency leaks for sure. I know people always like to look at the sexy stuff. So yes, it can actually you know, pay off in terms of running economy and efficiency. But most importantly, those are the reasons why most of you listen to this podcast say, I have an ouch, right? It's it's not because you know, you have this one little minutia thing, it's because you can't steer your parts. And then there was a breakdown in the system somewhere just because you showed up not stable. You know, I had a prior podcast guest who, who always said, you have to pretend like you're the captain of your ship, you are responsible for steering your ship. And I love this analogy. And it, it is a little bit more complex than you actively attempting to steer your body in the right direction. I, I, sort of think of this as like a three-part issue. Like one, you have to make some conscious effort, but you also need the actual strength to be able to steer your ship in the right direction. And also, I think it's important to recognize that you need some practice. You need to be able to feel, you know, viscerally what it's like to steer your ship. And is essentially what we're discussing right now, the integrity of your kinetic chain of the hip to the knee to the ankle, all the way down to the ball of your foot? Are, are we just talking about, you know, having a really good kinetic chain from those points and, and being able to utilize those muscles, activate those muscles and, and put force into the ground the proper way? Jason, you just said so many things beautifully and eloquently. That was wonderful. Um, so, so, so in a nutshell, yes. And let, let me say this. In my book, Running Rewired, in the opening chapter, I have this point that you know people say we're born to run. I would say we're adapted to run, right? We, we are creatures of habit. And if all you do is sit at a desk for 12 hours a day and put your running shoes on and run, you're not born to run, right? You're practicing horrible positions all day long, and you put that deconditioned 
poor wear body into running shoes and tell it to go run. That's why most people are getting hurt. If we think about preparing for running as a multidisciplinary skill, right, that we want to put into running, that's the, that's the holy grail, right? When you can learn to feel these positions. So I love what you said there because it isn't just about like how much can you squat, right? No one really cares. What I care about is, are you putting the right set of skills into every single run every day? And what that comes down to is you as an athlete need to take responsibility and ownership for the ability to steer your body as you run, right? Steering your body means controlling the rotational loads from the ground, through the foot, through the hip, through the spine. That's your job, right? Like, and that's not an issue with strength per se. We can call it that because people say you strength training, but you can call it that if you want to in layman's terms. But in reality, we're talking more about proprioception, which is body awareness, right? And that comes from practicing things. They're not that hard, right? They're not supposed to be super challenging in terms of strength output at all. But they're trying to get that mind-body connection to feel different positions, right? So when you put yourselves in these positions, you're building that awareness. It's going to help you build that skill of reflexive control. Realize when you're running, the, the time on ground that each of you has is between 0.1 to about 0.13, I mean, excuse me, 0.1 to about 0.35 seconds each and every stride, right? That's a really short period of time. You don't have time in 0.3 seconds to think about, okay, contact, move center pressure from outside foot, across med heads, out through big toe. That doesn't happen, right? That's impossible. So these things need to become reflexive and that comes from practicing simple skills often. Yeah, I, I like the the overall simplicity of that. It just seems like something that is now very approachable for runners. It's it's not super complex. We can practice it regularly. And it does seem like, you know, stability is, is a subcategory of strength. How, how do you define stability and, and how it relates to strength? Because, you know, on the one hand, we are not strength athletes. We are endurance athletes. And, you know, we are going to be spending most of our time training running, but at the same time, you know, we need some strength, we need stability. And and I'm just wondering how those two are, are related to each other. For sure. So my my simple explanation, I have two analogies I use all the time, right? One is you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. It just doesn't work, right? The second one is you can't fly a jet engine on a paper airplane. Those are obvious, right? The, the, the big engine is going to, the paper airplane can't support that load, right? And the cannon, the, the shockwave from the cannon is going to knock the canoe over, okay? Those are nice to think about. But in reality, there's a great uh, little kind of analogy we've got from, um, a, from a researcher named Punjabi. He published this like over 30 years ago. And basically, he defines stability, right? And so stability is not strength. And he, we basically has, have this, this triangle, right? Three kind of peer, parts to this triangle. First thing is, We've got muscles, right? Muscles obviously create force that actually pulls on our joints to create motion. You need to have muscles. But muscles aren't muscles aren't smart, right? They don't know what to do. We have to have a nervous system, meaning your brain has to tell the muscles, hey, you know what? You need to show up at this time and fire this hard to do your job, right? But again, that brain needs input, right, from our body to tell us where we are. So our joints have things called mechanoreceptors, right? It's a fancy word. All it says is it's circuits in your joint that tell your joints where they are in space. Just as a side note real quick, if you look at your hand, you can tell if you have it as nice as an open or if you're making a fist. You can see that, right? But if you close your eyes, you can still tell if your hand is open or closed, right? And that's because you have that, those mechanoreceptors are giving that sense of proprioception. 
So proprioception is a sensory system, not a strength issue, right? It's a sensory awareness of where I'm in space. And your brain takes an idea of where am I in space, sends it to our brain and says, hey, here's where we are, right? Brain processes all this information, right? And some of it's done in the brain. And some actually is done underneath the brain. It's an area called the brain stem when things become reflexive, right? And then that tells our muscles on, okay, now we want to pull this hard, this hard, this often, right? And so the cool thing is when you're practicing new skills, right, you're using your brain power, right? You think about things above your skull. Your brain's learning to find and feel new positions and you're aware of things. And you know that the first time you try anything new, you have to really concentrate really, really hard, right? And the more you get, the more time and attention you give to it, the more it becomes almost automatic. And the cool thing is that information stops being up in the processing engine, right, in our true brain above our skull and goes in this thing called your central pattern generators. And those live actually below your skull in an area called your brainstem. And so when you walk, if you think about this, you don't have to think about, okay, lift hip up, you know, lift knee out, extend leg, contact heel, push off. Like you can just walk, right? You've done it thousand steps your entire life. That's because that program to move your body is actually in your brainstem. And so by practicing motions over and over again and building stability, you take this as something you're not just practicing as a unique skill, but you involve it, you integrate it into the way you walk and run. And that's how you actually learn. That's where that cool buzzword people talk about neuroplasticity, right? We're trying to take your brain, make it plastic and take those changes in that skill of stability and then integrate that into your brainstem. And that's when you're actually transferring things you're doing into a sport that you love to do, which is run. Now, runners don't actually practice this skill too much in our normal everyday training, do we? I mean, it, it seems like if we are doing normal running training and then we're doing maybe a dynamic warm up before we go running and then we're doing a more traditional strength workout afterwards, we're usually not really focusing on proprioception and balance and, and these finer physical skills that, that we're discussing. A hundred percent. I mean, most of the stuff that runners are doing before, like bounding type activities, right? And th those are, those have benefit, but it's a completely different type of uh, activation for your body, right? So, um, you know, I tell people all the time, it, people love to do things that look hard because it looks cool on social media. That's not why we're talking about stability training, right? A lot of people make stability training too hard. I know everybody out there has seen some picture of somebody doing squats on a stability ball. It's cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. It's cool. I can do them. It's fun. That has zero transfer over into running. Okay. It just doesn't. Okay. You're never in a position where you've got both legs on the ground in a wobbly, cushy environment. That doesn't happen. Okay. But if you think about strength and stability, excuse me, stability training as a different type of approach, I want to challenge my nervous system appropriately at the right amount at the right time. And so we have to think about what's the right environment to put a body into where it's challenged, but not overstressed. You've all been in situations where it's like you have new demands at work and you've got somebody yelling and you have a deadline and your brain's overstressed and you don't learn, you just cram, right? You try and just get by. If you're really trying to get put yourself in a good position to win, you want to have time to process things. You want to be in a safe system and have your brain feel like, okay, I'm in a position to learn. So we need to make the complexity of the exercises enough, but not too hard. Yeah, I think that's important, right? Like I actually differentiate between strength training and stability training where, you know, you said something I think that's really important that I want to highlight that 
Stability training is often neuromuscular, and it's really training your brain. It's how your brain is communicating to your muscles. Whereas there is some of that with, with weightlifting, no doubt, but it's more of a physical skill. You're trying to increase your body's ability to recruit muscle fibers and, and really improve your strength and your power. Whereas stability training is just a little bit different. Now, do you differentiate between, you know, what I'll call just regular old stability and dynamic stability? Because I think as runners, we need more dynamic stability, like the ability to be stable while we're moving rather than on, you know, maybe just standing on one leg while we're brushing our teeth. How do you think about that? Great question, Jason. So we're actually doing a study right now in our lab. I teach at Oregon State University in the PT program. And what we're trying to do is to quantify uh, aspects of stability. And most uh, tests of stability are based upon basically a, 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 some measure of quantity, right? So for example, one of the tests we're using is what's called the Y-balance test or star excursion test. And what people do is they stand on one leg and they reach one leg, the opposite leg forward, they reach it diagonally back to the side and diagonally back to the other side, right? And we, we this test is defined as giving people a distance of how far they can reach with their opposite leg. And this test has been shown to be predictive and actually correlated to injury, which is great. But this test doesn't take into account quality, right? So two people may actually have the same amount of reach in how they reach with their leg, okay? So the same distance, but they may achieve that with completely different strategies. So for example, one person may have a lot of bend in their ankle and their knee and their hip to bring their body low, right? And they reach your opposite leg in front of them. The other person may not do that at all. They may actually keep their ankle and their knee quite stiff and instead pivot the torso forward to kind of act as a counterbalance as they reach in front and back and behind. And so when it doesn't tell that why balance tests and a lot of these screening tests we use don't tell us quality metrics. So what we're doing is actually screening athletes strength in their feet and strength in their hips and looking at how different strategies come into tests like this to actually break down how someone stabilizes. Because stability isn't this like whole body thing, right? We've got the ability to stabilize uniquely in our foot and ankle uniquely in our hips. And then if we really screw up, we tend to do things like wobble our trunk or step with our opposite leg once we lose our balance. But we want to break down stability from not just like this whole body thing people talk about, right? Is are you stable? Can you balance on one leg? Like that's nice, but a lot of people when they balance on one leg, look like they're flying an airplane, right? They take their arms out, they kind of wobble side to side. That's not stable, right? That's just hoping you don't fall over, right? But that's what I call reactive stability versus being proactive stability, which is, hey, I've actually practiced and gotten really stinking good at developing fine control in my foot and ankle and fine control in my hip. And I know how to integrate these two together. And now I'm really good. So when I wind up in positions of fatigue, because everybody gets tired when they run, right? I know how to tap into those and use that, those systems proactively to keep my body in control. And that's how you remain durable for each and every mile of every run. Yeah, this aspect of durability is really interesting to me because it seems like if you can remain stable in 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 almost like the proper way, in an effective way. You know, you you mentioned these two hypothetical runners who are employing very different strategies for doing this reach test. You know, is there a preferred strategy for doing this kind of test? You know, essentially I'm asking are there good ways to do stability and are there bad ways to do stability? Yes, it's a great question. Um, I'll let you know the outcomes of research when our research is finished <laughs> this spring. But um, I would say on the, on, on the early front, we do know this. This is well known. 
again, I break this down again. We have different strategy mechanisms. I'll describe this really quickly. So let's say you're it's not even running. Let's talk about walking, right? So if you're walking along and your foot hits like a different surface, right? You kind of have a little micro stumble. It's actually, you know, let's make this simple. Let's say you're trail running, okay? Because everybody does this. You're running a trail and you hit a, a variable surface, right? And so your body should be able to micro adjust your foot and ankle position without you thinking about, hey, brain, this seems odd. We should change the control through our proneal muscles to help drive uh, inside of our foot down. Like that doesn't happen, right? Your brain just micro corrects instantly. And so if you've got a good foot and ankle strategy, you micro correct from your hip right away. That's the first part of your body hit the ground, right? And if you fail at your foot, if there's a delay or things don't fire fast enough, what happens is we wind up using what's called a hip strategy, right? And hips say, you know what? We didn't crack fast enough from foot and ankle, so we're going to have to have our pelvis on our hips, right? Our pelvis on our femur is going to have to change position in the side-to-side mechanics or the rotation mechanics to try and keep our body from falling over, right? And if you fail there, then you wind up with what's called a step strategy, which is you have to almost change your stride and you stride really wide, almost like like almost like a, a little ninja position to avoid falling over, right? Or tripping, right? And if you fail that, you fall to the ground, right? So we know that we when we look at stability, we want to train all those mechanisms. I want you to have a good safety mechanism. I want you to be able to step wide if you need to, right? But that's your point of last resort, right? I want to make sure that we can get that first point of contact, get that foot and ankle stability strategy primed, right? And yes, because foot and ankle muscles are super sensitive, they're very proprioceptively active, but they're not near as strong as muscles up in your hip, right? So we need to coordinate those two so they really work together. So we talk about building better stability. There is a path and it's basically making sure we can build a solid foundation in our foot and integrate it with the hip. And once you do that, now you've got a system, right? You don't just have body parts, but you have a system that works together to really make sure that you can keep your body controlled to make you durable. And also, I know, again, to put the glitter out there, because people love this, right? Like, you know, we know that when you keep things stiffer, right, or more stable, we do a better job transferring elasticity, which means you have a more efficient stride as well. Okay, so um, there, there is an efficiency uh, aid here as well. So it, it, it definitely plays to both sides of the coin. Yeah. And if we were to talk about some of these skills like balance and proprioception and, and really being able to finely control some of your, your muscles and the way that your body's moving in space, is this something that degrades over time as we get older? And, and I'm thinking of this sort of like, you know, uh, everyone knows that your strength, as soon as you hit 40, really starts to plummet and you've really got to do some good work at maintaining your strength. Whereas your aerobic fitness, it just doesn't drop off a cliff like it does when you turn 40. And then again, when you turn about 60, you know, there's just a less of a gradual drop off. Are these neuromuscular skills and, and sensory skills that we've been discussing, did these are these affected by age like our strength or is it something closer to our endurance or aerobic metabolism that, that doesn't quite degrade as quickly? Great question. For the most part, it comes down to how are you a creature of habit? Okay. Now the exception I've got here, as we get into our elderly years, we do lose a lot of, um, surface, uh, uh, sensory feedback, right? Um, we, and so when you lose sensory feedback, you lose some of that proprioceptive or body position sense. That definitely happens as we age for sure, usually up in the elderly years, okay? So we're talking about like once you hit 60s, you definitely have to diminish sensory feedback. That's true. But in, let's say, younger than 60, right? If you practice things the, 
these things off. And again, I'm talking about lifestyle, not just exercise. If your lifestyle is one where you're cued into these things often, right, you maintain them very well. If your lifestyle is one where you don't practice these things often, you don't maintain them very well. And they actually deteriorate pretty quickly. But the really cool thing is, this isn't something where, again, until you reach a point where you have sensory degeneration when you're elderly years, right? If you're in that under 60 range, right, you can get this back pretty quickly because it's not a strength limited aspect at all, right? It's not to say that if you didn't practice this when you're 20 and now you're 45, will you never get as good stability as you have when you're 20? You really can, right? There's no limits on how, on how controlled you can make your body. So you can practice these things and you can get better. Let's talk a little bit about the lifestyle things that we can do, you know, as we're kind of going through our normal life to help us increase our, our balance, our proprioception, our level of stability. Uh, cause I, I think this is really important for, for injury prevention, but also just if we are performance oriented runners, if we want to run a PR, if we're trying to qualify for Boston or whatever our performance goal might be for us, it seems like this is a really crucial aspect to staying healthy so that we can be consistent and train well over the long term. For sure. I mean, I think one of the first things is, is take your shoes off. And I'm not talking about barefoot running. I'm talking about spending more time barefoot around your house, around your yard, right? Just getting comfortable with feedback. So many runners are almost like hypersensitive averse to their, their foot touching anything besides a sock, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a shame because that means that your, your nervous system is scared when your foot touches things. That tells me right away you're not able to process good versus bad feedback. And that doesn't work, right? If, if, all, if, you're, if your body perceives all feedback is bad, good luck making a good decision, right? And so we're trying to create good decisions. So one thing is, you know, get your body used to different stimulations. So that should be easy. Anybody can do that. If you are doing strength work, okay, do me a favor, take your shoes off in the gym, okay? That's one, that's one other, again, super simple thing everybody can do. Um, Squats are a little bit different. We can talk about that if you'd like. But aside from squat work, there's no benefit to a shoe, right? Because all shoes do is squish, right? And so we want to have nice, solid, firm foundation underfoot. So by doing these things barefoot, you'll get some connection point to your ground. And for most of you, most of you, when you stand on one leg, you do tend to shift the outside of the foot. I, I know because I've seen this for over 20 years of practice, okay? Most people, when they go to one leg, they just kind of shift, they roll that side of the foot, and they kind of, again, reactively balance. And if I now have a TheraBand in your hands or a kettlebell in your opposite hand, right, you start to wobble a whole lot and you think, wow, this isn't very good, right? And you feel that difference. And so I want you to find and feel the idea behind, oh, I have to get my entire forefoot down to the ground and then hold this weight and then move the TheraBand back and forth and move the kettlebell hand to hand or whatever exercise you're doing, right? So these are super simple things to give you some awareness of what's happening because most people, again, you train your quad strength and your hamstrings, you train your hip control, you train your core. What do you do for your feet? The crowd goes silent, right? So some of these things are really simple. It's giving you some awareness first and foremost. It seems like variety is really important. You know, like, okay, we're going to do a single leg exercise, but we might add in a weight. We might add in some movement to that single leg exercise. And there's also all of this, this great benefit to not wearing shoes when you're walking around your house, maybe you're just hanging out in the backyard or you're doing some weight training. Is there also value to wearing a variety of different types of shoes? You know, maybe you have a pair of flats or spikes 
for workouts and races. Maybe you have a slightly more minimalist pair for short and easy runs. And then some of your runs are in a more traditional cushion trainer just to expose your foot and your lower leg to different surfaces, different you know, stack heights and arch supports and, and all the different things that you could experience in a different type of shoe. Yeah. Um, most runners are in a codependent relationship with some, with one of your pair of shoes, right? Like you told yourself, I can run well in this one pair of shoes you've had for the past 12 iterations, right? And that that's all you wear. You should be able to run in almost anything, right? I mean, let, you know, unless you're a zebra in a field of horses, right? Unless you've got something outlying your mechanics, you should be able to run in literally anything on the retail wall. Okay. Um, and so what I say by the, what I say to this is, yes, you should have the skill to wear anything you'd like. Right. And that comes from being in different environments and practicing different situations. So for, for you as a runner, you hit the nail on the head. You want to have a pair of more minimal shoes, I'm not saying this has to be a pair of vibrant five fingers, right? But a more minimalistic pair of shoes. Why? Let's well, give you more feedback as you're running, okay? And give you more feel. That's going to help you pick up a number of things that are happening during your stride. And it's going to load your foot a little bit more. I run most of my miles in a very minimal shoe, okay? And I do that for a reason. I'm a biomechanics researcher, and I know I understand these things. I've looked at the data, and I know that when you put a little bit more load to tissues, they adapt, right? And so a more minimal shoe will put more load to your structures. It will resp- result in better proprioception. It results in better stability. You know, And we've shown this in research. It'll result in a little bit more load to muscles. And I'll say this. Some studies have shown a, a, an improvement in strength. Some have not, right? There's there, The results are mixed on these. But I would say the, the, the default is you will get a little bit stronger tissue adaptation in a more minimal shoe. That should be for some of your miles. That can be maybe some miles you're running by yourself, some slower miles, some easier miles, okay? But that is going to demand that you show up and your foot is going to have to work a little bit harder. So if you said, hey, Jay, we're going to do a speed work session today. or go to run a 10K with a fast group one day. I would not run in my minimal shoes because I know there's a metabolic cost to that, right? So it's a time to have a slightly more cushioned pair of shoes that is going to help offset some of that mechanical work and help you get by a little bit faster, right? There's a role for having a lightweight pair of spikes uh, or flats in your in your, in your your uh, ensemble as well, right? So different shoe surfaces provide different feedback, and that's going to help condition some some effects. Those things don't happen in the short term. They happen over the long term. And for those of you who've been running in a maximal shoe for the past two years, don't go buy a pair of minimal shoes and try and run eight miles on your first day and say maximal shoes hurt you. I'm going to tell you right now, your poor decision-making skills hurt you, right? So think realistically <laughs> and find that, okay, if this is a complete, you know, I've been in, in this thing my entire life, I'm going to switch 180 degrees from that and try something totally different and go run eight miles. Bad decision, right? You need time to adapt. That first run might be, a mile or two, go right around your neighborhood, right? Or wear around the house. So go do some yard work in for a week or two, right? And then give them a try. But your your body needs to adapt to these things over time. Your body will adapt, right? We know that bodies always adapt to change, but it doesn't happen overnight. We want it to sometimes, but it doesn't happen overnight. Yes. Gradual changes are probably one of the tried and true principles of endurance running. You also seem a little bit agnostic when it comes to types of shoes. You think variety is good. We can wear different shoes for different types of workouts. It's going to give us different stresses and adaptations. Are there any types of shoes that you think runners should just stay away from just flat out? 
so this is always hard, right? I mean, I get asked this question all the time. What are the bad shoes? What are the good shoes? I mean, I, I've done research on a lot of shoes, a lot of shoe companies. And for those of you companies, I haven't tested your products uh, for you. I've tested them against some competitors. So I've tested a lot of it's the retail wall. I would say there's a reason to have almost every shoe at such a retailer, right? So for those of you listening, if you've got a really flared up plantar fascia problem right now, okay, the shoe of choice for you to get by on your runs pain-free might be a pair of maximally cushioned, highly rockered shoes, okay, for sure. But if you're not that person, I would steer away from a maximal pair of shoes um, for a number of reasons. One, that increased cushioning can mask all the feedback you get during running. And also, we know it compromises stability. And it can also increase the number one source of pain in runners, which is which is knee pain, right? Because uh, while it, while they can dampen some of the impact loads, they can definitely increase the mechanical stresses in the joints. So for most people, more is not better always all the time, right? Um, so again, that's an outlier shoe for a certain type of person. And for a certain type of person, it's a great choice. But for most people, it's not the best choice, okay? Um, likewise, everyone does not need to be running a pair of vibrant five fingers. I know you have listeners who love them, and that's great. But it doesn't mean that every, every one of your friends should run them as well. So you know, there are reasons to have things across the board, and you have to find out what you need. I think for most people, I've always said thin, firm, and light is what you're looking for for the vast majority of shoes. You want to have a thin amount of cushioning underfoot because we know that some cushioning does provide a metabolic um, effect, right? So we know it actually decreases the cost of running and it gives you good ground feel. We want something light because lighter weight shoes mean less uh, mechanical weight. You have to lift every single stride. And, uh, and thin gives that connection to the ground, that proprioception. So if you can keep those things in mind, most shoes in that category are going to do really, really well for most people. But again, you also should have a pair of more minimal and maybe a little bit more aggressive kind of race-oriented shoe in your quiver as well. Yeah, I think one of the under-discussed benefits of using a variety of different types of shoes too is that over time, now this is a long-term proposition that you're not going to figure this out in a week or two, but over time, you're going to get to know what type of shoe, what characteristics of the pair of shoes you, you like really agree with your body. So, you know, I, I've been running for over, um, about 25 years. I know just from looking at a pair of shoes, whether or not I'm going to like running in them. So if there was a big flared heel on a shoe, I'm not going to like it. If the heel toe drop is 12 millimeters or higher, I'm probably not going to like that shoe. And this process of trial and error really was only possible by buying a lot of shoes, wearing a lot of shoes, and, and then just kind of going through the process of figuring out what my body enjoyed, what my body didn't enjoy. And, you know, that process of trial and error isn't always fun because there's error involved and, you know, no runner wants to experience error. But I, I think getting to know your body requires some experimentation. And part of that means wearing a lot of types of shoes and figuring that out for yourself. Jason, I would agree 100%. And I would say that it's interesting. I would say universally in the healthcare field of people, you know, my colleagues, one of the biggest problems we see in runners is that they don't try out different things, right? Because again, I once upon a time I bought shoe X off the wall and it worked and then I switched one time it didn't work and I just stuck with that original shoe rest of my life, right? Um, and that's a shame because you can learn a lot about yourself as a runner and a lot about your form by trying different footwear. Um, it, it, it's it, it's really really critical. I mean, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like I would I would I would 
give you a task to challenge yourself to try and find some different things that you would like to give a whirl and, and try them out. And, and let me say this too, enough runners don't think about the effect of pace on their shoes. Um, there are a few shoes out there that have what we call non-Newtonian dynamics. It's, if I lost half of you, let me just explain what this is real quick. Um, you, when you were a kid in elementary school, you probably did the experiment where there was some water in front of you and you put your hand in the water softly and it got wet, right? And then you punched it and it got wet. And they put some cornstarch in the water, right? And they started up and then you put your hand in the cornstarch water and your hand went through it and got wet and you pulled it out. And then you punched the cornstarch water and it felt like you hit a mattress. It got actually very firm, right? So not that's an example of non-Newtonian dynamics. What it means is the faster you load it, the stiffer it gets. There are a number of brands out there that have some of these type of uh, midsole characteristics that change how stiff they are depending on how fast you load them. Meaning when you run faster, the shoe actually firms up, which is what you want, by the way. Okay. So if you're in a pair of shoes that doesn't have a non-Newtonian cushion system, right? The pair of shoes you like for, let's say, 845 nine-minute pace is probably not going to be the pair of shoes you enjoy for a six-minute pace. And so when we have this shoe that we, quote, love, most runners, I'm not going to throw people under the bus, but most people spend way too much time running zone three conversational all-day pace, right? And then we run and we expect to run fast, right? Like The time to play with these things is when you're training different energy systems, when you're doing your long, easy run, when you're doing tempo runs, when you're doing speed work, try different footwear in those situations once you've adapted to them because you're going to find that firmer shoes feel better running faster. And the reason why is when you run faster, you've got more force in a shorter period of time. And the more squishy that system is underfoot, it can't rebound in tune with your neuromuscular system fast enough. And so a firmer shoe is going to feel better running faster. That's something most people don't really realize and I really wish they did. Yeah, I think that's where the experimentation can really be helpful because you can take a pair of shoes, wear it for a speed workout, and if it's very different than what you're used to, you don't have to wear it for the whole speed workout. You might just wear it for the last one rep, two reps, half the workout, whatever it might be, just to give yourself a little bit of exposure to that new stress. And I think that's a really helpful way of not only figuring out what kind of shoe you like and that works for you, but also giving your body all these kinds of different stresses so that it can become more resilient. You can develop more proprioception and balance and stability like we've been talking about. Now, of all the different ways that we can build stability and these very valuable skills into our training, you know, we've talked about a lot of them. You've got a tool that runners can use. I have one myself and I love it. I want to talk a little bit about the MOBO board before we finish up today. Um, this is a, a type of stability board that rocks back and forth, but there's a hole in the middle of it. And it's not because it's defective. It's by design. <laughs> Why is there a hole in the middle of the stability board? Yeah. So I developed mobile board because, you know, what I found is, you know, I'm in the clinic working with my athletes and working with my patients and you're teaching them these things and there are subtleties, right? Because feet are very dynamic uh, parts of our body. You've got a lot of bones, a lot of mobility, and you have a lot of muscles which control the finite elements of coordination and control. And we practice exercises in the gym together. And then I let them do things at home. They come back and like, Hey, show me what you've been doing. And they've done it all wrong. Right. And so I said, wouldn't it be great if I could find some type of environment to stick athletes in that would sort of cue or even sort of force them to do it right? And so what you've got is a mobile board, right? So the reason why I developed this is because we want to do a good job by getting muscles to work inside the feet. Those are called 
intrinsic foot muscles, which are different than muscles up in the calf and the shin, which are called extrinsic muscles. So let's talk about this real quick. As you walk and run, that center of pressure we talked about earlier, right? The path of force goes from the outside of the foot across the metatarsal heads or the ball of your foot and then out to the big toe. So it doesn't go into the little toes. In fact, a lot of you have had problems at plantar plate tears and stress fractures in your little toes. That's because you don't shift load over where it should be, over to the, to the big toe. So what MOBO does is it cues you to put load across the ball of foot and out to the big toe like it's supposed to be. And the reason why is because your big toe is anatomically and neurologically completely different from your four little toes. Four little toes have three joints in, in them and they're designed to grip and curl. And if you balance by kind of gripping and curling your toes, you can try this if you want to, you'll see that the ball of your foot comes off the ground and you wind up leaning way off the outside of your foot, like I mentioned earlier, which is what most people do, right? So MOBO sort of cues you to put load where it should be under the first metatarsal, which is a big toe. The second thing is the board tilts in a certain uh, axis, which is the exact axis of pronation and supination. So I'm training you to use your foot in the exact path that you need to as you walk and run. And it's a rocker board, not a wobble board on purpose. I mentioned earlier, things need to be hard enough, but not quote too hard. Okay. A wobble board moves in all directions. And while it's fun, that doesn't train the unique skills of that foot and ankle strategy we mentioned earlier. So I want to take some complexity out of the equation and really help you develop a solid control through the foot and ankle. And the third thing is, we don't just train feet, we train people. And so the cool thing about MOBO is it allows you to train things in weight bearing. So you can coordinate your strength in your feet with the hip up above to work it together to build a body, not just a foot. So my, my, my whole goal for this is to give people a tool they could use to save time, right? So um, to put you in a system where you can work on some foot and ankle control specifically, but again, work up to the point you can do your squats, you can do your deadlifts, you can do all kinds of stupid exercises, right? For your whole body on the MOBO and get more bang for your buck in the same amount of time. You know, I did a video about the MOBO board a little while back and I filmed myself doing a bunch of exercises to include as examples and also as B-roll in the video. And it was actually hilarious because I had to film many more minutes of video than I thought I was going to have to because I kept falling all over the place. And I admittedly was a little cocky going into this, Jay. I thought, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent athlete. I can you know, I have good balance. I'm going to be okay with this. And I wasn't. And I think, I think it can be just as valuable as a diagnostic tool of figuring out, you know, where some of your imbalances might be, because it's really evident that my left leg is not nearly as stable as my right. And, and I have almost that exact problem on my left leg, this inability to really hold my right big toe down on the ground and put force into the ground while you know, my, my hip is engaged. And, and I think it was just, it, it's eye opening because you, you, you think you're going to be good at these things, but because it puts you in exactly the plane of motion that you have to be in for efficient and effective running, it really exposes every, you know, workaround that your body has created over the years to get you, you know, through your run. And I just found that to be, to be very eye opening and pretty humbling. Yeah, I, I got a, uh, a message on social media yesterday from someone who said, hey, that was funny. I, I, saw, I saw one of the Olympians you work with uh, jump on the plane yesterday, and she had her MOBO board you know, latched to her backpack when she got on the plane. And, and for that, I would say, 
we're all works in progress. And, and yes, just because you are fast, because you can run a sub three or even a sub 230 or a sub 220 marathon doesn't mean that you don't need to work on the chassis, right? Like that's different than fitness. You may be very fit, but your coordination may need some work. We've all got imbalances, self-included, okay? I mean, nobody's perfect. And so, you know, when you mentioned that you have a big asymmetry right to left, we're very one-sided creatures the way we're wired, right? I mean, I'm left-handed. I'm very much left-handed. But when you run, you have to use both feet, right? So I tell people all the time, if you're playing soccer and you feel more accurate with your dominant foot as far as, you know, shooting in the goal, that makes sense for sure. But when you run, you have to show up in both feet, you know, balanced, right? And so, you know, we do need build, we do need to build some requisite skill across both feet and fix some of these imbalances you find. And like you said, that that little kind of experiment you gave was a self-test, right? Like I noticed the imbalance. Great. That's not bad. That's saying, hey, look, we just found a problem we have to work on and fix this is going to help us over the long term, right? Let's now we're aware of it, right? You thinking about it. You're focusing on it. You're going to do some work on MOBO or not on MOBO, whatever. I tell people all the time, like MOBO or not, you need to work on your foot control, right? Just like you have to work on your core. It's, it's, it's just the body part, right? So, um, but you're going to practice this and you're in that cognitive state. And as you get better and better at this, it becomes reflexive. It becomes something which is kind of just activated all the time. And that will wire into that central pattern generator. And then something you'll have to think about all the time. Now, would you say that this kind of stability training tool is this something that we have to be super formal with in our training or, or is this something that we can kind of keep in the corner of our bedroom or office and, and use it for five or 10 minutes a day or a couple times a week? You know, cause I'm thinking about some of the previous exercises we were discussing and how, you know, a little bit of practice is really all you need because it's essentially a, a brain exercise rather than, you know, more of a physical exercise. So how do you kind of advise athletes to use the MOBO board um, as part of their training? For sure. It's a great question. So I'll say this, everyone starts somewhere, right? I mean, I've, I've got some people who let's say, you know, we want them to be an A and they start off with kind of like a B, right? So like they can jump in and just start to play. We'll come back to those in a second. Some people though are going to like the ones they go on the first time and they say, wow, this rocked my world. I can't believe how hard this was. So for those folks, do me a favor. If you want to look at the website, I've got a little sessions called a little section called rehab and regressions. And I actually have you holding on to a wall or a chair or something to take away some of that stability demand so you can really focus and concentrate on your foot, okay? And get that really specific. And you do that for a few sessions. Some people may just need to do it for one or two sessions, and then they can kind of progress on to what I call the foot six-pack, which are kind of six exercises. And I say, hey, look, do me a favor, play with these six exercises. You don't have to be super formal now, but say, look, I'll give five, six, seven, eight minutes, right? A few days a week and just play on here. So rotate through those same three, uh, rotate through those exercises. Maybe you do two, maybe you do three, right? You don't have to do all six at once, but play with those. And we know that balance and proprioception training gets better the more frequently you do it in short durations. The goal isn't to fatigue your body. It's just to expose your nervous system to a new stimulus often, right? So play with it. Once you build a good foundation and you actually can feel, hey, like, my size is starting to feel normal. I don't have to stumble and reach out every time, right? I'm actually in control, doing very well. Then you can move on to some more advanced exercises, which is integrating your MOBO into the other stuff that you're already doing, right? So again, adding MOBO into landmine deadlifts, if you have an Olympic bar, right? Adding MOBO into split squats. So now you're getting double bang for your buck. You're challenging foot and ankle control, but you don't have to do, quote, extra stuff. 
So I would say that, yes, it can be something you're playing with, but the, the biggest thing is do take some time to make sure you're building an effective strategy. We mentioned earlier, quality is the most important thing. So spend some time getting quality. Once you've got the quality, play on it, mix it up, experiment. I love seeing new things people are doing with it. It's not a website. That was the whole goal, right? Integrate it into things that you love to do. Yeah, pro- probably not falling all over my living room like like I had been doing. That's probably not what you were thinking of, but... <laughs> <laughs> if only the cushion furniture, it's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jay, one of the things that I'm, I'm very encouraged by is the fact that this all seems very approachable. You don't need you know, thousands of dollars of home gym equipment. You don't need an hour-long workout. You can use it as a diagnostic tool as well as an actual uh, strength and stability building tool as well. And it just seems quite versatile. And, and I'm, I'm just very excited that I own one because I just love using it. Um, it humbles me, like I said before, and, and I think I need that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But Jay, thanks so much for, for being here and really kind of opening up this idea of dynamic stability and how, you know, strength isn't everything. And, you know, I'm often kind of labeled the, the strength running coach you know, the guy who's always pushing runners to get stronger. And and while I think there's enormous benefit in that, we also have to make sure that we're utilizing the strength that we have in a really effective way. And and I think the MOBO board and a lot of these concepts can be really helpful at taking all that strength, taking that control, and then expressing it as what runners really want, which is faster races and fewer injuries. So I think this is super valuable, Jay. Thanks so much for being here and your expertise. Thanks, Jason. My, my goal has been to put out tools and information to help people succeed. And Mobo has been an extension of that as well. And I thank you for all you do and spread the good word. Thanks, Jay. And if runners are interested in checking it out, you can go to uh, moboboard.com. And Jay was nice enough to extend a discount. You can use the code STRENGTHRUN10 and you'll save 10% on your Mobo board. So thanks, Jay. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. And if you want to keep listening to this podcast, support our sponsors who help me keep the lights on. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast. First, I want to hook you up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Elemental Labs, is offering a free gift with your first purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Personally, I'm on a big watermelon and citrus kick right now. I think you'll love them. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, or colors. I'm now in the habit of giving away boxes of Element at group runs around Denver and Boulder, and everyone loves this stuff. It can also be a really helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're running long. If you sometimes feel overly tired or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness after long runs or workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially if you're running in the heat, with Elemental Labs. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get a free sample pack with your first purchase, and you can get your hydration optimized for the upcoming season. We're also supported by the MOBO Board. 
Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. Invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, Mobo helps you stabilize your stance with an innovative rocker board that's set up on two fins. There's a hole where your four little toes are supposed to be, which effectively forces you to drive your big toe into the board to improve your stability. I mentioned this before, but I was pretty arrogant going into my first session on the Mobo board. How hard can it be to balance, right? Well, (laughs) I was humbled pretty quickly. Even if you're a good runner, better balance, stability, and proprioception is going to help you have a more powerful stride and prevent more running injuries. You'll also be able to diagnose which side of your body has more stability, the left or the right. So it's incredibly valuable as a diagnostic tool as well. You'll learn how to improve the efficiency of the kinetic chain from your hip to your big toe. Because as Jay likes to say, it's not just how strong you are, but how well you use that strength. Save 10% with code STRENGTHRUN10 at checkout at moboboard.com. Again, that's STRENGTHRUN10 at moboboard.com. All right, that's our show this week, my friends. I appreciate you being here for being part of the Strength Running community and all of your support. We'll be in touch. 